0: Welcome back to another episode of Who's to Say. This is tennis show number four, a preview of the 2023 ATP season. I'm your host, Tom Foolery. Very happy to be back with you, and especially for this brief interruption of our recently scheduled programming for the Hindsight in 2020 series, this is a timely interjection because we are already headlong into the men's season, the women's season as well. But I wanted to focus on the men's season today because there's so much to address and appreciate about what unfolded last year, which I would have to say was highlighted by not only two Grand Slam wins from Rafa Nadal, a Grand Slam win from Novak Djokovic, but also the U.S. Open being conquered by the youngest world number one end-of-year player, Carlos Alcaraz who at 19 years old is, in fact, the youngest since the ATP rankings were established in the early 1970s. So a tremendous feat for him. But one of the aspects of intrigue to commence this season is that he has yet been able to play. He withdrew from the end-of-year finals last year that took place in early November in favor of his uh, recovery. But he recently announced on his Instagram that he would not be participating in any of the beginning of the year tournaments in Australia or New Zealand, and also will not be playing in the Australian Open. So he is unable to stake his claim to one of the four Grand Slams of the year, but there's enough to preoccupy the rest of us. And I I want to open with uh, this quote from Andre Agassi's memoir, Open, that is, I I highly recommend that... just if you enjoy a memoir or an autobiography especially of athletes it's very well written it covers what i what i consider to be the interplay that a lot of athletes but a lot of us go through which is this struggle about what we're meant to do supposed to do and it's it's so well-described in Agassi's memoir, and I've quoted it before on various tennis shows, but this is featured in the book called The Circuit, written by Rowan Ricardo Phillips. This came out in 2018. I read it en route to my first experience at the 2019 Indian Wells Tournament in California, which is considered the fifth Grand Slam, and it's it, it covers the 2017 men's tour season, and there are a lot of great many dramas going on that season, but what I appreciated about it is it is a, a broad overview of what the men's tennis season look, looks like. And to wit, here's this great encapsulating quote from Andre Agassi's memoir, in which he writes, or is quoted as writing, I tell him how the game is organized, the circuit of minor tournaments and the four majors or grand slams that all players use as yardsticks. I tell him about the tennis calendar, how we start the year on the other side of the world at the Australian Open and then just chase the sun. And that is the story of the tennis season, that it starts so early. Uh, The the recent ATP 250, there are, uh, for everyone's benefit, there are certain rungs of uh, caliber and the points that you're able to earn uh, with various minor tournaments. So the most minor on the professional tour being an ATP 250, where you earn 250 points for uh, the if, if you win the tournament. Up from that is an ATP 500, which is a, a very high-caliber tournament as well. And then you have the ATP Masters 1000, and those are sort of very near cousins of the four Grand Slam tournaments. And then, of course, the four slams at the Australian Open this month. The French Open will be next later in the spring, early summer, late May, early June, Wimbledon, June into early July, and then the year ends for the slams in New York with the U.S. Open. Uh, But in between, there's so much yet to unfold, and one of the things I wanted to highlight to begin, just in the scope of a tennis season, is that, I mean, rewinding a little bit to the end of last year with the Davis Cup, which is an international tournament tournament It it, uh, pits some of the best international programs against one another as players represent their countries. And this year, this past year, it seemed to have a a great deal of import uh, with Canada taking home the trophy. And they certainly are the premier. I think we can give that to them. They came up against Italy, which is another class uh, federation in terms of tennis development internationally, but Canada really is the creme de la creme, to speak a little French befitting the Canadians. But that tournament concluded just after Thanksgiving. So a lot of those players were playing from early January, like they are this year, and all the way through, if they're healthy, to late November. So there's almost no comparison to a season, maybe some Olympic sports, uh, which occur year-round, far beyond the limelight of what goes on every four years, but the tennis season is exceptional in that respect. That they, I, I heard it recently said that tennis, a tennis match is a marathon of sprints, and it's so true. What just happened in Adelaide in in southern Australia. With Novak Djokovic and Sebastian Korda battling for almost three and a half hours over three sets for an ATP 250 tournament, the first of the year that they played, is pretty surreal considering that now they'll rest and recoup ahead of the Australian Open, which, if you're unfamiliar with the Grand Slams, they play best of five sets. In recent years, some of those competitions have gone four or five hours, and that is. To say that it's grueling competition is a gross understatement and a disservice to what those players go through because the only breaks they get are changeovers after every two games for 60 seconds, and in between sets, unless you're taking a prolonged bathroom break, it's only a handful of minutes. So th- these are the games within games that they have to anticipate, and from a training aspect, I, I mean, e- even if you're not well versed in what it takes to train athletes of that level, just think about if you had, even if you're an amateur tennis player, if you played January to almost December, and let's say you're a two, three time a week player like a lot of us are, I'm sure you can appreciate what you would have to commit to in terms of your strength training, recovery, mobility, stretching, ice cold, your nutrition, your hydration, it's, it's so multifaceted what goes into this sustainability of an athlete over such a long season like that, and I'll speak a little bit to the nuances of the change in surface type, but it's, uh, it's, it's no small element that they begin the year in the heat of Australia in their summer on the hard courts. Hard courts are especially uh, challenging on the body very unforgiving surface. I I may have mentioned this before, but I attribute some of my uh, really non-existent injury history uh, across all the sports I played as a youth, not least of all tennis, is that I spent most of the summers of my childhood playing on clay courts, which are especially forgiving to the body. You're sliding around on clay, your start stop is on this packed dirt, a lot easier to play on. And for a lot of American players, they don't have the benefit of growing up on clay courts because they are a lot to maintain. They're very dependent on the climate that you're in. I mean, certainly growing up in New England, that was only available during the summers. When you play indoors, you are in the winter times and in the, in the early spring, you are playing on hard courts. But a lot of European players have the benefit of playing on clay courts very nearly year round, and I think that does allow them to have, uh, especially in their early careers, a lot of uh, sustained success without the interruption of injuries. That said, we already have that that caveat of Carlos Alcaraz, who has uh, who is now embattled with lower body injuries. But I only digress briefly to say that there are so many intriguing, uh, yeah, sort of as I said, mini dramas going on within a tennis season. And one place I wanted to start off is with the really, uh, I think, alluring wealth of young players. That several of them are household names are already in the tennis world, but there are a few who have yet to break through on the biggest stages. And if we if we just start with players of note who have yet to win a tour title. Uh, I'm, I'm only going to pick a handful of names here because I, I want to, I mean, this the great book I mentioned earlier, The Circuit, uh, that covers the 2017 tour season, that's like a 200-page book. So if, uh, if Phillips can cover that season in 200 pages, I'm sure I can keep my uh, season preview relatively brief, and I aim to do just that. But so sprinkling in just a couple of players per uh, criterion here, players who have yet to win an ATP title that I think are going to be primed to at least play in some finals and and vie for a title this year who were very very close uh, Alejandro Davidovich Fokina out of Spain he was in the uh, Madrid final I believe last year or Monte Carlo excuse me in the South of France uh where I mean he he had a very I mean, he beat Novak Djokovic early in the tournament. It was one of Novak's first tournaments back on clay, so he, he caught him sort of in the early phase of his conditioning, but uh, totally a world beater. I mean, very, very athletic, powerful player, and came up against Tsitsipas, which is a, a tough go anyway. Jansen Brooksby out of the U.S. Uh, has um, had some deep runs in some slams like the U.S. Open, uh, some master tournaments as well. Very, very solid player. I'd say he's pretty well-rounded, some things to improve on for sure, but that's what a limited offseason is for. Um, and Jack Draper, who's a very entertaining lefty out of the UK, uh, out of Great Britain to be exact. And another super athletic, I mean, other than Cam Norrie, I think he's going to be really in, in that, that one, two punch of great Brits, uh, who are representing their country going forward. Um, so there, I, I think those are some really fascinating characters to watch who should be in some finals this year. Even if it's 250 or, or 500 level, they have the game to break through in this season. Um, as we shift our focus to the Grand Slams and players who have, have really yet to advance to these more notable stages, we have uh, Lorenzo Musetti, who's a youngster out of Italy. Really elegant one-handed backhand game. Uh, he's yet to make a Grand Slam quarterfinal. Sebastian Corda, who really had a breakthrough year last year and has already shown strong signs coming through this year in the Adelaide Final against Novak. Um, he it, it seems like every month he's making a greater stride in his game. So I'm really hopeful that he's gonna find himself in a slam quarterfinal this year. Another very capable American, Tommy Paul, who has, I, I think, shown brightly, and, and not just as a flash in the pan, he's really put together some strings of high-level competition. I know he's uh, featured in some lower-level ATP finals, so uh, for him to break through to... A Grand Slam quarterfinal is very much in the cards for him, and then Miomir Kecmanovic, um, out of Serbia, who's a compatriot of Novak Djokovic, uh, who's who's beaten Djokovic, I believe, last year. Uh, I I do see him. He had a kind of a disappointing drop off to end last year, but this year he he definitely has the game to I think win four rounds of matches in a Grand Slam and, and wind up in a final. Uh players who, I mean, th- this list for the first couple names was very surprising, although when you consider who they've been up against these last couple years, and this is very much an, an underpinning of the stories to be told this year, uh, these players have yet to make a Grand Slam final, and that includes Andre Rublev out of uh, Russia, who's been a perennial top 10, top 5 player in the ATP Tour rankings, Taylor Fritz, who recently broke into the ATP top 10 and finished top 8 and was able to play at the end-of-year tournament last year, which I thought was very impressive. And yes, Alcaraz did bow out due to his injury, and and Fritz was able to supplant him, but uh, still, I mean, he won Indian Wells, he had a lot of uh, really competitive matches against some of the best players where he was very close, if not victorious. So uh, he's, he's achieved a Grand Slam quarterfinal, and so I think with four chances this year, especially with his success on hard courts, uh, beginning and end of the season at the Australian and the U S he is, I, I think very well positioned to find himself in a grand slam semi. Uh, and then some youngsters who have yet to, uh, find their way onto that stage include Holger Runa, uh, who's the Dane, uh, and very, very capable. Uh, it'll be, he, he made such a meteoric rise with his game and in the rankings last year, which was highlighted by beating Novak Djokovic in the Paris Masters final at the end of last year in three very hard-fought sets, and um, had Djokovic on the ropes for a lot of it, and Djokovic hung on until deep into the third, but uh, I think the the youngster's legs really helped carry him to victory there. Uh, Yannick Sinner, who uh, who had some great Grand Slam quarterfinal appearances last year. He was up against Djokovic two sets to love before succumbing to his loss there and then had, I I think, easily one of the most entertaining matches of the tour last year, his quarterfinal against Alcaraz, which went five sets, nearly five hours deep into the night. I think they were playing until 2.30 in the morning, which is one of the unique facets of playing at, at the U.S. Open that they have such late-night sessions. Night session matches, uh, so he's uh, unfortunately already embattled with injuries. He um, got hurt in his match against Corda in the quarterfinals of Adelaide a couple weeks ago. So uh, that's going to be something to monitor as well. And that's a—I'll make a brief uh, digression into this tangent about injuries, which is you—you you certainly get concerned to see. I mean, I, I any any sort of grimace or or. Uh, you know, reaction that you see on the face of someone like a Novak Djokovic this early in the season, I get very concerned because it's January and you want to see these guys play and play their best and not be hankered by any sort of nagging injuries to start the year, you know, let alone at any point. But um, Sinner sustained what apparently was a, a fairly, compromising knee injury that saw him lose uh, one six to Korda in the second set of their match because his mobility was not there. And uh, and Djokovic had a, a hamstring tweak against his semifinal match against Medvedev going into the final in Adelaide. And so th- there I, I think I'm neglecting maybe one or two other injuries that happened there. But uh, I, I think that's partly a product of when you are the, the caliber of players who were Talking about that, they are deep into the weekend or week two uh, of all of these major tournaments. That I mean, th- there's just miles on those tires there, and it leaves them open to injury. I if if you look at the if you look at the body of someone like a center who's a big kid, I think he's six three six four, rather lanky, continues to put on some uh, some due muscle and size, but uh, there's certainly a balance. Like I said, with tennis being a marathon of sprints, you have to have that musculature of a, of a sprinter with very strong legs and torso. Uh, upper body can be lacking because you need the endurance there. But, um, on the other side of that coin, you do need the figure and the musculature that will be able to carry you literally over many hours on the court in one match. And then over the span of, if you're playing in a, in a minor tournament, you're, you're often playing every every day, uh, and then at a Grand Slam, if you're lucky enough to continue to advance, you're playing every other day, so you have a little bit more opportunity for recovery on that side. But uh, man, it's it's a it's a tough bid when you're starting the year off with. Um, with some injury concerns as well. So that that's my brief spiel on injuries. Uh, always something to keep an eye on. We're going to talk about one player uh, who suffered a, a really gruesome injury last year and what the implications are for him later this year. But he's already been in some uh, Grand Slam semis and finals, so we won't uh, mention him just yet. But uh, players who have yet to make a Grand Slam final include uh, also Andre Rublev as, as um as I already mentioned, he's yet to make a semi. Felix ogier Asim who had a superb year last year. I think he won uh, in the months of September, uh, late September, early October. I think he won three or four tournaments in a row, uh, which was super impressive just to have that um, that uh, sustained level of focus and intensity that combined into some great victories and had a shot at another before losing to Holger Runa. Uh, in Paris, which I thought was uh, quite compelling. Francis Tiafo was in the U.S. Open semifinals against Alcaraz last year and uh, went down in four sets, I believe. I don't think they won five. Uh, but his game has really come along quite nicely. Uh, certainly an exceptional athlete. and The serve is big. Uh, aggressive enough to come to the uh, net. And one of the things that I love in terms of his mental and focus game is that his coach, Wayne Ferreira, apparently has made a, a very concerted effort to extricate the phone from their training sessions and from their match play. And I, I've, I've mentioned this on my Instagram before. Uh, and I probably can't do it justice here, but uh, it was a parody that someone said uh, asked Arnold Schwarzenegger, Arnold, what was the secret to your success in the gym? And Arnold said, "That's easy. It was checking my phone between every set." <laughs> and obviously, that's not the case because there were no cell phones for Arnold coming up, and probably for the best because uh, I'm I'm prey to this as well that when you are in the gym or on the practice court, I I really try not to bring my phone with me to any sort of uh, tennis practice or match, but even in the gym, when you're recovering in between sets and you're changing the song or or fast-forwarding through an advertisement on a podcast, it's always there. And it's a perpetual temptation that, uh, of course, I believe does us way more harm than good. And especially if you are a tennis player, where it's often said that the, especially when you're a very evenly matched player, uh, it's the first person to blink first who loses. And of course, they're not checking their phones when they're in the semifinal of a tournament. But uh, I think there's a spillover into practice as well, as if the habit that you Manifest in a practice where every time you go to sit down or take a break, you're checking your phone, that just detaches you from what you're trying to accomplish with your practice. And especially if there's an objective for the day uh, that's a, that's a battle that I know a lot of coaches have to fight with their young players. So I tip my cap to Wayne Ferreira and Francis Tiafo for taking that seriously and trying to combat that issue. Um, two other names worth mentioning who have yet to make Grand Slam finals include Her- Hubert Hercatch. I saw him play Federer, uh, in 2019 at the Indian Wells quarterfinal, and I mean, he only lost four six four six. It was it was a very close match. He's uh, he's won a Masters one thousand tournament at Miami a few years ago, and big player, big game. I w- would love to see him serve and volley some more because with his, he's another really massive player at six five or six six, and has the big serve to back it up, big strokes as well. But uh, I think he certainly has the talent, and then the the developmental game as well to improve his results. And uh, Cam Norrie had his chance against Novak Djokovic in the Wimbledon semifinal last year. Uh, took a set off him, took the opening set, but uh, I, I think he does have the fitness and conditioning to to last through a Grand Slam tournament to win half a dozen matches and wind up in a final. But if I'm to be critical, surprise, surprise, I am, uh, he, he doesn't seem to have... A standout strength in his game. I mean, aside from his mobility, quickness, fitness, I I think those are great strengths. But in terms of strokes, um, I think the serve came a long way last year. Especially as a lefty, he's able to hit some incredible angles and spins that do put opponents on the back foot. But you, um, I mean, you look you look at the finalist last year against Novak, who was Nick Kyrgios, especially on. A, a grass court, his serve, his forehand, his hands of the net, all really extraordinary strengths that uh, catapulted him into that final, uh, and especially his rare focus and intensity that, uh, that brought him there. But he's always a, a compelling character in this story. So those are some, I think, names worth watching. As we dive into the rankings here, this is where I'll, I'll give due credit to Jeff Sackman again because I much prefer when I compare and contrast the ATP rankings to his ELO rankings, and this this is a proprietary uh, ranking algorithm. Uh, I mean, it, it just came up watching Djokovic in Adelaide where they kept referring to him as the world number five. I think we all know, especially with how he finished the season last year, Uh, winning the year-end tournament, which I thought was very impressive, uh, not least of all because of the limited amount of tennis he played, uh, but also the opponents he had to beat along the way, who was, with the exception of Alcaraz, the eight best players in the world, and he handled most of them, including Medvedev, who's been, uh, aside from his U.S. Open loss to him, he's he's dominated him comparatively. Um, So the ELO rankings are really an indicator of estimated strength. And uh, it's a it's a compilation, according to Jeff's st- statistics and use of the algorithm, of the historic matches they have, so whatever the database is of their performance and statistics they're in, coupled with the quality of opponents. And, and that is something that is, I, I think, a critical distinctive factor in this assessment compared to ATP rankings, which really only calibrate a player's ability to move up and down based on what uh, what stage of a tournament they get to. And uh, uh, another, I think, asset to the ELO rankings, these particular rankings we're going to use here, is that uh, the undercurrent of the quality of opponent is that if you lose to someone who is not, not just ranked beneath you, but is someone who you should beat statistically, that has a greater weight to your, uh, you know, if, if, if you're the losing player, that will drag you down in the rankings. And if you're the victorious player, that can launch you ahead. So I, I like that. I, I like weighted analysis of that kind because um, whether we give it the credence in the rankings or not, it's a huge element of, of how we... Um, how we evaluate results in tennis. And to that point in these particular rankings, I'm looking at the top 30 or so right now, uh, in the top 25, there are five Americans this year, which, uh, which is for the most part commensurate with what we're seeing in the ATP rankings. But, um, for instance, Sebastian Corda, who, had that terrific battle with uh, with Djokovic in the final recently. Uh, I think in the ATP rankings he's just outside the top thirty, and in these Elo rankings because of his strength of schedule and uh, what he's been able to produce in the last couple of years, especially two thousand twenty two alone, he's number fourteen in these rankings, which I think is a much more uh, if if not uh, if not directly accurate. I think it's much closer to the caliber of player that he is. Um, so I, I think that's really exciting for American tennis to have five players, and they include uh, Taylor Fritz, who's at the top, uh, Sebastian Corda, as I mentioned, Francis Tiafoe, who, as I said, had a stellar showing towards the end of last year, Tommy Paul, and then John Isner is up there as well, uh, a, a perennial um, uh, top 25 and, and top 30 player. Shout out to John because he's getting to be an old man in his uh, late 30s. I believe he's almost 38 now. Uh, so I, And and uh, Brandon Nakashima as well uh, of Japanese heritage, but um, uh, an American, I believe, born and raised. And he's only 21. And he, he's on the list of, I mean, this is my opportunity to dive into, again, some young players who are already finding themselves in – and 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 a an, another brief tangent just to say that these ELO rankings that we're going to go off of, which has Novak Djokovic number one as opposed to the ATP number fives, ATP is what wins out at the end because those, by and large, determine the seedings in tournaments. So it's a big deal for Djokovic if he's number five as opposed to number one, because he'll be playing tougher opponents sooner in the tournament. When you're number one, you open up with the lowest ranked player, if not a buy. And then from there, uh, you have a, you have a, some. it's hard to say easier shot at the final, uh, because nothing's easy about it on the tour. So, uh, so seating has a major impact. And of course that's beholden to the ATP rankings, but these ELO rankings are just to speak to. I want to highlight briefly, um, some of the top players who Uh, May have struggled at the end of last year, but deserve their spots atop the board. But the two standout players under 20 are Carlos Alcaraz, the year-end number one last year at 19, and Holger Runa, uh, who, as I I mentioned before, is uh, close to Alcaraz's age, also under 20, uh, but has really stood up to some amazing tests on all surfaces, has displayed Um, some great ability on clay as well as hardcourt. I think the the grass court is such a limited season anyway. It's really only uh, during a brief stint in the summer, and a lot of them are just tune-ups to Wimbledon, which is the premier grass tournament, of course, uh, we have a great one here in New England at the Tennis Hall of Fame in Newport, Rhode Island, which I plan to attend this year as a spectator, not as a player, because I would uh, cringe and cower before the bomb serves that come down from people like Isner and Maxime Cressy. It's, it seems to um, attract a lot of the big servers that tournament, so it's always a spectacle to watch. But uh uh, players under 22, uh, I've, I've mentioned a few of these before. Sinner uh, at 16 in the ATP rankings, Lorenzo Musetti at 19 in the rankings, Jack Draper who's top 50, and Brandon Nakashima as well, who's top 50, but they're, uh, thankfully their ELOs are much higher. And then under 23 players are Felix Ogiali-Asim, who's number 7 in the ATP, 5 in the ELOs. We mentioned Sebastian Corda and then Sebastian Baez as well, uh, who I, I think another Um, Argentinian of uh, smaller stature, like his compatriot Diego Schwartzman, but, um, again, across all surfaces have proved himself to be a threat, and to be under 23 years old has a lot of promise ahead of him, and I, I think that's justified based on the season he just had. So some other highlights from the top of the ELO rankings, as I mentioned, we have Novak Djokovic deservedly at the top, Carlos Alcarez just behind, Stefano Sitsipas, 24 years old, which is pretty crazy to say. He's been, I think in his 22 season a couple years ago, was in the final at Roland Garros against Djokovic and was up two sets to love and did not win. And I think that has really been a turning point for some of his mental game uh, turning into some darkness, unfortunately, for him. Still working with his dad. I have questions about that relationship, because uh, especially refreshing a recent podcast with Dr. Jim Lair, who's been an absolute pioneer for especially individual athletes in terms of their psychological game. He's talked at length about parent coaches, and he said, you have to be a really extraordinary person to balance that relationship with your child. And I don't know the intimacies of the... um, Apostolos and Stefanos relationship, but uh, it seems to be lacking in some respects. And you always wonder what's going to be the fulcrum that uh, has a player maybe start to seek guidance from elsewhere. But that ball is very much in their court. I, I admire his game and his ability so much that I know he deserves this uh, number three ranking. And uh, and he had some great wins last year on on clay courts again in Monte Carlo, um, and. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think he's a player that every year is a threat and has some really uh, dynamic records against some other top players. But he's also, I mean, we're going to get to a couple more of these names, but these 20-something-year-olds who are all going to just beat the shit out of each other in various stages of the tournament. And it, it's going to create, I think, an even an even bigger dynamic than the remarkable achievements of Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer all having to vie against each other for what is now 60-some-odd Grand Slams among the three of them. I mean, that that is sublime to a degree that that is hard to appreciate at this stage, because uh, we're still, uh, two of them are, are still in the throes of their career, Roger having only just retired. But uh, it, it makes me think about what it's going to take for these players, like a and Medvedev, and Medvedev already has a slam, uh, to be fair, but uh, Felix seems Sinner, Berrettini, Kasparud, Zverev, whom we haven't mentioned quite yet, curious uh, if if we're going to be fair to him as well, um, what's it going to take for those guys to break through when they have to beat up on each other and then likely wind up in a final against another young, hungry talented, superbly committed player, or Natal or Djokovic who have the the poise and the experience and the focus to see these events through. So it's a that's one of the more um I, I think appealing elements of the current epic of tennis is all these players who uh, I'm trying to th- So now Alcaraz fits that bill. Uh, Dominic team, who uh, unfortunately due to his injuries, has plummeted in the rankings. I think he's barely inside the top 100 on the ATP. Luckily, he did get, um, he, di- he does have a wild card to the Australian Open in a couple weeks, thank God, uh, because he deserves to be there. But, uh, and he's in the top 40 in these ELO rankings as well, but just has not had, the time on court or the results that really warrant any higher recognition than that. But he has a grand slam under his belt. Kasper Rude was in two finals last year at the French and the U.S. Open. So they're on the cusp, but it, it's still the question of what's it going to take to to precipitate sustainable success? I mean, I don't have the numbers in front of me. It's going to be a much longer podcast if Rafa Raffinita- Natal, uh, retires this year or soon, where we really break down what he, Novak and Roger, and, and Andy Murray, when it's time for him to call it, what they were able to accomplish in terms of the regular appearances in Slam and Masters and top-level finals. And these young players, as I said, the, the attrition rate of, of them coming up against one another uh, really rules a lot of that out, but uh, I'm Very optimistic and engaged with the stories that a lot of these players, I think Felix really uh, shines the brightest in terms of what he, as I said, was able to produce at the end of last year for sustained achievement, being in finals, winning titles. Uh, So he at number five in these rankings, I think is, um, he, he might be the hungriest and his game really displays some impressive power that some of these other players maybe do not have. I I skipped over Daniil Medvedev um who is um certainly one of the most well-rounded players and I I I remember the experience of watching him um in the final against uh, at the US Open against Nadal a few years ago and then even against Novak um where I really didn't feel like he unfortunately, uh, Novak did not play his best. And that was evidently some emotion, some uh, nerve tightness, uh, where Novak was not giving him the best version himself- of himself that could have raised Medvedev's game. But he, do- when he when Medvedev is playing at his best, it looks like largely error-free tennis. And that's evolved into some uh, aggression as well but I used to accuse him of being a pusher being uh, which is kind of a rung below a defensive player uh, but he he has sort of um, I think he's shed that skin a little bit and has developed into a greater threat and uh, really a kryptonite to to some players like a Rafa uh, like a like a Tsitsipas. so he he warrants that that top five top three consideration wherever he goes Um, Sinner is just outside the top five. I'm praying that he stays healthy because he has a a very outstanding, aggressive game. Uh, Great quickness as well. I, I do think the conditioning is there, but there might be some questions in the weight room and with his recovery because he does seem to get dinged up throughout the season and has missed some tournament time. Uh, in, these, in these recent years. So I wish him a speedy recovery from whatever's going on with his knee so that he can be a major player in these tournaments to come. Uh, seeing Matteo Berrettini out of Italy at number seven in these ELO rankings is somewhat surprising, uh, he looked very good in the United Cup, which was a, a exhibition tournament of sorts uh, with players representing their country. He was in the final against the next player on this list, Taylor Fritz. They had two very tight uh, tie-break sets, that, uh, neither of which went his way. But uh, what I was seeing from his back end, from his movement, uh, I think some areas that have been weaknesses for him in the past, very reassuring, and I, and I wonder what's gone on. Behind the scenes, there but always his serve as a weapon. He has some of the wildest head speed on his forehand, and uh, and the net game. I mean, he's clearly been willing to follow a lot of his shots in, and as another big guy, um, has the has the stage set to uh, to win some shorter points and and come out on top. But uh, but he's only a surprise there because I think of these next couple players: Taylor Fritz, Holger Rune, Casper Ruud. I I feel like they're the strength of their wins would have vaulted them a little bit further up the rankings. But hey, it's uh, it's a long way to the top when you want to rock and roll. And it's it's very crowded up there as well, as we're seeing. But uh, I, I don't want to gloss over those players as well, because Fritz, um, who, again, another 25-year-old, he's been on the tour for quite a while. So he, he does have a lot of experience that he can pull from now, especially with longer runs in tournaments, where uh, I think he's putting it together that he's going to be a threat in uh, definitely in the in the um, Australian Open. I, uh, for him to make a semi, I, I'll be curious to see his draw and that really is such a, um, a, critical mass of these discussions of how far players can go and why they're uh, striving for ATP points uh, because th- just however the the main draw shakes out who they're pitted against early and potentially late uh, has some level of influence over their fate. I won't say all because our destiny is our own, and depending on the mental and spiritual aspects of these players' game, they may know that to be true. But uh, like I said, it's it's crowded, and uh, they're going to have their work cut out for them, to say the least. Andre Rublev finds himself just outside the top 10. Uh, biggest weakness is his mental game. Very emotional player. Uh, and I mean very emotional, um, wherein I I do worry about his ability to get back on track because what can be said about the stalwarts of the top level of the game, and I think Alcaraz has displayed this to a T, is how you're playing when you're down. And in the, the marathon that is a Grand Slam match where you could potentially go best of five, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't have his best of five record. I think as the season goes along, we're going to be uh, diving into some more of the, uh, you know, the the tournament stats of how players fare over best of three, best of five. Uh, but Rublev doesn't really seem to have connected the dots yet with what it's going to take to keep his emotions together. Um, but someone who has done that very impressively is Alexander Zverev, and his season came to an end last year at close to the three-hour mark at the end of set number two against Rafael Nadal, when he slid out to his right and tore nearly every tendon in his ankle, and for him to be playing in the Australian Open this year is a remarkable feat and testament to what he's been able to do with his recovery, and um, just the practice footage I've seen has been very reassuring, and he was a player last year, especially with what he was doing uh, in that match against Rafa, um, where I thought he was really going to be probably in more... Uh, he's he's won a few Masters Finals, but he belongs in the late rounds of every Grand Slam tournament. I mean, he he does have that kind of game that is so well-rounded, very similar to Medvedev, but arguably more aggressive on the serve. I would say... Uh, one of the most athletic players, another long 6'5", <laughs> uh, long-reach, long-leg player, incredibly mobile. Uh, the fitness is totally there. It seems like he, like Medvedev, is hardly ever going to the towel, hardly ever breathing, you know, these big heaving breaths. And I'm a huge fan, as I said, of his um, mental maturation because he did used to be somewhat easily distracted and distractible. And he's he's more of a... Uh, of a warrior now where, um, you know, not, not easily shaken. And and that's what it takes to be, to have that uh, level of uh, unbroken focus over the course of a match a week, two weeks. And that's how you end up in slam finals. And he's been there before he lost in 2020 to Dominic Team in the fifth set after having match points. I mean, really crushing there, but that has not defined his career. He's bounced back tremendously from there, and I expect uh, some really impressive and and not unpredictable results from him this year. He's only 25. He had uh, several months from, yeah, late May, early June of last year till now to recover, and I think that bodes well for him. Um, Cam Norrie, Sebastian Korda follow-up just behind, and Rafa Nadal's at 15 in these rankings only because of his... Uh, I, he did not have a strong end of the year, uh, missed some time uh, due to injury. Uh, I think he got swept in, uh, in the ATP year-end finals last year, so that certainly didn't help. And, uh, and he's 36, and he has been a lot more outspoken about especially his foot injury. And as someone who has suffered a, a stress fracture in his foot, and I play tennis a fraction of the time that he does, Uh, It's one of those things that really wears on you, like any chronic pain. It has a a great mental toll because when you feel it on a regular basis and you feel like you have to consciously and consistently respond to that pain, I mean, yeah, that that's so much of pain is is a mental, um, it's a mental test, and 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 not just in what we experience with the thought of pain but how it registers in our brain and then, and then uh, pro- is processed to that point of pain or throughout the rest of our body in terms of uh, compensation or reaction or imbalance or anything like that. So uh, I anticipate that Rafa will be picking his spots this year in terms of, uh, as he should, at 36 years old, 22 Grand Slams, 92 uh, tour titles, Um, I think he should be picking his spots in terms of what his calendar looks like. But pretty much everyone else we've mentioned to date, including Novak, I think is going to be playing everywhere where we expect them to. Um, Novak, because he had a limited year last year, because he was kept out of so many tournaments, uh, which at this point I'll mention, one of the more infuriating and unnecessary parts of the tennis calendar so far is that in the month of March uh, that features, two, uh, the, the, only two tournaments that are played in the month of March, uh, especially in North America are Indian Wells and the Miami open. And those are premier tournament. They're both masters 1000. They have huge main draws, big money on the line, a lot of AT, you know, thousand ATP ranking points potentially. And at the moment, they are not allowing unvaccinated players to participate. So uh, that will mesh nicely with the continuation of my series, Hindsight in 2020, when I do start to address more of the um, issues with COVID treatment and COVID protocols uh, that are inconsistent with data, with our understanding of disease treatment and um, uh, natural immunity, uh, herd immunity, all, all those facets, which I know Novak Djokovic is well acquainted with uh, and, is, and is why he has remained unvaccinated. Um, so that, I mean, that's, I I hope he gets a chance to speak more about that in the months and years to come, uh, with the benefit of some hindsight, but, uh, I continue to applaud his character and how he's comported himself in these last couple of years, but it will be nothing short of a crying shame if he's unable to compete in those tournaments because he does very well in, in those two tournaments at that point in the year and he doesn't need time off he's you know in a world class level of fitness and in a league of his own and um no sense in letting the young guys uh have an easier time of it so i hope we get to see him there but uh yeah i just you you never want to see a player's schedule dictated for him you know you want that uh those decisions to be exclusively in their court and i know rafa will be taking that very seriously um i mean he's one of the in the in The list of names let's see until we get to in these elo rankings, the um 22nd ranked p- player, which is a countryman of Rafa's public, Carreño Busta. Uh, only he and Novak are the only players in their 30. Every other player we've mentioned to date is 27 years or younger, Cam Nori being the oldest. Uh, so that, that's I mean, pretty wild, uh, at this stage in the game for and, and still, I mean, everyone's afraid. Although one thing I'll speak to, and I mentioned this in uh, in my tribute to Roger, is that at this point in their careers, uh, they probably seem a little bit more uh, earthly, I suppose, in terms of how other players look at him, look at them, because there has have certainly been long stretches of time. When any or all three of Rafa, Roger, Novak look unbeatable and they bring that that dominating aura with them onto the court where you see players are not as keen to be aggressive or to take risks or to do the things that you need to do in order to beat a player like that because they might be easily deflated. And I think some of that is being eroded uh, because you have players of supreme confidence uh, like Alcaraz, Felix, Medvedev, uh, Runa has, has shown his confidence for sure. Uh, Zverev has that as well. So, so they, they seem to be more uh, peers. And, um, and, and I think some of that has to do with age as well, as these kids might look at uh, these 35 and 36-year-olds and say, well, I trust my legs and my lungs more than I trust his. And if I can just slug it out in the trenches for uh, three and a half, four hours, then you know he's going to be the one to blink first. So um, that level of conditioning, injury prevention is going to be something I'll be following intently in the camps of Rafa, Novak, uh, especially uh, Zverev as well. I mean, that, that was a serious ankle injury. Um, Sinner, I mentioned, no other real, uh, although when Alcaraz does hit the court again, we'll see if he's close to 100%. Uh, but to round out the um, the top 20 here uh, before we bring it to a close, uh, Alex Minaur, who's one of the most athletic players on the tour, only uh, just shy of 24 years old, which is crazy because it, feel, it feels like we talk about him every, I mean, he's in a, the main draw of pretty much all the major tournaments and is a pretty consistent appearance in the third, fourth rounds, sometimes quarterfinals. Uh, so I mean, young enough and healthy enough where he can have some breakthroughs this year, to be sure. Huber Herkatch is just behind him. Uh, Nick Curios at 18 in the Elo rankings also likes to pick his spots with uh, with where he plays. Uh, some people have criticized that that that's because his fitness is not really there. And so um, sometimes he just can't handle the uh, really exacting Torah calendar. And fair enough. I mean, I, I think those questions are, uh, are deserved for him because he's not exactly known for his training. Uh, it was very impressive that he found himself with a, with a one-set advantage over Novak Djokovic in the Wimbledon final last year, but uh, didn't really follow that up with too much else. And uh, you, you wonder and I certainly do, where his mind and heart are going to be. He's been very open about his mental health struggles, um, some of his priority. He, he did seem to be looking beyond that final last year, talking about like, you know, maybe I could take the rest of the year off or maybe my career would feel complete if I was able to log a, a Grand Slam win. Uh, and that, that doesn't, Support uh, a very hungry focused player, so I wonder if he'll be able to recalibrate from there. Last two players in the top 20 of these elo rankings are Borna Chorich, who uh, had a very, uh, I think, commendable resurgence last year. He seems to have Sitsapas's number wherever they go, although Sitsapas just did beat him recently in the United Cup, but uh, has strung together at 26 years old after some time off due to injury. Um, very promising level of play. Uh, another really class athlete, very well-rounded game, starting to p- display a lot more dependable aggression. And he's someone I, I really look forward to seeing in a lot more main draws this year. And tip of the cap to Francis Tiafo, who had a super impressive last year. I think his peak match was in uh, the Tokyo semifinal last year, just an absolute dominating performance. I forget who he played, but he's shown his medal against uh, the, all, all of the players ranked above him. Uh, he's he's gutted out some impressive wins. As I said, he was in there for five sets with Alcaraz uh, to the point where I, th- that almost could have gone... Or, or four sets, I believe, rather, excuse me, with uh, with Alcaraz. Um, you know, I, I was really kind of blown away with, uh, with what he was able to, to do last year. And yet, you know, as I dive back in, he's another great example of as impressive a a year as he had his win loss percentage was, or his win percentage rather was 58%. And that actually is, I mean, that's, that's a larger story, uh, of the tour year is if, if you zoom into all of the, you know, as Andre Agassi said, Andre Agassi said, the Russian nesting dolls of a tennis match. You know, it, you lose so many points in a match, you lose so many games in a set, you lose so many sets in a match. Hopefully, hopefully not more than uh, one. But uh, loss is a big part of the life of a tennis player, and how, of course, how you handle that is arguably more important than how you handle your victories you need to handle those with grace and, and short memory as well. But, um, I mean, if I, if I do a, a quick dive into say, um, Holger Runa's season from last year, uh, played in 50 matches and had a 78 win percentage, which, uh, I mean, is pretty staggering for a player, um, you know, so young, so new to, to the higher levels of the tour. um, and then we can contrast that with Alcaraz, who played in 70 matches last year, had an 81 win percentage, which is with with 13 losses though. I mean, I've mentioned Federer in years past who had, you know, four losses in a season, six losses in a season. Like those those are numbers of old that are hard to repeat from some of these players because, as I said, arguably the level of competition within their age group within a within the the quarter of their tournament. Um, it's uh it, it it's it's really daunting and i think hopefully we're going to see some players distance themselves from the field over the course of this year whether that's due to injury or fitness or um, distinguishing practices in the mental game, which I hope, I mean, in this in this era of podcasts and media, and I'll give a quick shout out to an exciting uh, event coming out on Friday in the tennis world, I, I would just love to uh, be more privy to the world of, um, of tennis players. I mean, they're so remote and removed. I, maybe part of that's because they're international and we're not as connected to them here in the States. But, uh, even, even among the top American players, I would love to see them on the, um, just on the mic a little bit more opening up about w- what some of their practices are like. I'm, uh, I'm fortunate enough to have been connected to, uh, Novak Djokovic's head of nutrition for the last four years, Shravine, um, out of, who's the founder of Symbiotica, which is a really, standalone supplement company that I urge all of you to check out to support your health, uh, not least of all because it's run by a really uh, special human being. But uh, he was able to have Novak Djokovic on his podcast in early 2021, talking about some of his, uh, th- you know, the the pillars of his mental approach to the game. And uh, few people are worth emulating like Novak is in that respect. So maybe that's something that comes to fruition this year. But and an exciting uh, concluding announcement is that this Friday, I'm, this uh, podcast will be out on uh, Thursday, January 12th. On Friday, I'll be posting this again to my Instagram. Uh, Netflix is going to release the first part of their, um, I don't know if it will be a, a docu-series. It, it must just be a one uh, part one of two uh, documentary film, uh, but it'll be part one of the uh, tennis season from 2022 which is really exciting. It's an all access. They, ha- they had access to a lot of the top, especially young players as well. Uh, so I'm really excited to see how that comes out. I hope it does justice to what those players go through in a year. Uh, really not much has been shared about the, um, the presentation of that. I'm a little dashed because part one is only out uh, this January. and We have to wait till June for part two, but uh, hey, that'll keep you on the string. Uh, and I hope it's one of those things that moves the needle along in the tennis world to get some new fans to uh, to get people maybe transitioning off the pickleball courts onto the bigger court, uh, the real one that you're playing on, the tennis court, <laughs> uh, because tennis is uh, a really special vehicle for better understanding yourself, your potential, how you interact with your conscious and unconscious mind, how you, Unpack the uh, the folds of of the. uh, Maybe I've lost the thread of the analogy there, but I've learned so much about myself in between those lines, and as well as off the court, the relationships I've made, knowing that it's more important how I handle myself because of how this man across the net is going to potentially view me. Uh, and if we're able to maintain a personal and competitive relationship, how I need to comport myself for my own benefit so that I can say I left everything on that court as a gentleman and as a sportsman. Uh, Every time I'm out there, I learn something new. And that's sort of a teaser to a podcast I'll be doing very soon to set the tone for this year about winning and learning. Because I'm so glad that I discovered that, uh, that tenet that Paul Check put forth that if we were to evolve out of the paradigm of winning and losing and really start to teach people about the, the new paradigm of winning and learning, that anytime, yeah, you might lose on the score sheet, but are you just walking off that court into the locker room, into your car, back home as a loser? Or are you going to take a, a deeper look at your performance mentally, physically, emotionally, and start to improve, start to mature and grow. And it's hard to do that when you won because you say, I won. I must be great. I must be perfect. And we know that's not true. You can win ugly. (laughs) You can barely win. And I think that's where we really need to hone in on what these great players do that we can pull from is um, the aplomb with which they handle their losses. It seems like they are the great ones are technicians that, yes, it crushes them for a moment, especially at the stakes that they're playing, but for the rest of us, whether we're competing at work or on a tennis court or a basketball court or in the gym with our numbers or on the road with our mile times, if when we come up short, which we are inevitably bound to do, will we, will we sit down with a lens of critical analysis, not to denounce ourselves as losers, but to redefine our situation as that of a learner, as a student. And I think that's where the greatest potential lies for all of us. But for the players I've mentioned on the tour this year, uh, I think that's going to define a lot of their seasons and careers. So I hope you're as enthralled and engaged as I am to follow the tour this year. Um, If I have more more notes to share on the women's tour, I don't have the benefit of the profiles on the women's players. Not that I don't watch them, but, um, the streaming services I subscribe to are just, uh, men's play when it's not grand slams. And in the grand slams, we do get to hone back in on what the women are up to and they deserve our attention as well. Uh, the standouts like Iga Sviatek, like Caroline Garcia, um, I think are, are also primed to have some exceptional years as well. And I, uh, throw my full support behind them, but, uh, There is a great deal of of entertainment to be had in between those lines. And I hope you'll tune in because the Australian Open starts very soon and it does not get much better than that. So let this be a year where you follow the drama of the tour and maybe find yourself when warmer weather strikes to be out there on the court yourselves. And uh, as always, I'm grateful that you follow my takes on this stuff because I can't wait to be back out there in the sunshine, sweating it out, learning from my losses, learning from my wins every day. But we get the benefit of uh, what I think is incomparable, constant action and entertainment, starting with the Australian Open. So let's go.